Okay, so a thing you should know about me is that I started watching Drive to Survive. I got really into F1, so I have gone like down the rabbit hole. I have exhaustively researched tire compounds and all (laughs) kinds of other stuff that I never thought that I would be super interested in. This is the Culture Study Podcast, and I'm Anne Helen Peterson. And I'm Nicole Washington, recovering sports addict and newly minted F1 obsessive. The reason I asked you on is because you don't hide your F1 fandom. In fact, it is a major feature of your stories. And I feel like I have gleaned things about F1 just through exposure to your stories. So before we get to your story of F1, for me, who I will say and preface that I have watched a couple of the Drive to Survive episodes during the pandemic, maybe at some point... That is about the extent of my knowledge. I've watched all of the seasons <laughs> at least three times. <laughs> Good. Okay. Right. So we have the bona fides in, in place. Can you explain Drive to Survive really quickly? Because that's my access point, And I think a lot of other people listening, that's our access point. Sure. Uh, Drive to Survive is a series on Netflix. It has five seasons, I believe. Each season follows a racing season. Uh, The first couple of seasons are sort of designed around following one team over the course of the season. So like, well, and the first seasons don't have the two of the bigger teams, Ferrari and Mercedes. They show up a little bit later, I guess, Mm. after they decided it was worth their while. (laughs) But that's that's the general premise is that it's the the. Season follows a racing season. Each episode is usually focused on one team all the, over the course of the season, although that changes a little bit as you go uh, through the seasons. I will say just as a side note that this formula for a reality television show has become incredibly popular. And I think, you know, the the fact that F1 bought in to allowing this amount of access to their stars. Unprecedented access, right? And as you point out, like that has to do with ownership switching. But like there's one for golf, there's one for tennis, there's one for cycling, I believe now. Yes, my F1 group chat became obsessed with the cycling one after we moved on from F1. So <laughs> yes, our and- F1 group chat is the Vroom Vroom Boys and the cycling one are the Bike Boys. <laughs> and they are... I think, remarkably effective in expanding the fan base of these somewhat niche sports interests, whatever you want to call them, um, and have done really well on Netflix. So that's just people, I think, have entered in different, like have started watching one and then they expand and they watch all the other ones, too. Yeah, it's general enough to give you sort of an overview of the sport and sort of how it operates, but also goes deep into a particular person or a team enough that you get like a real hook. What is F1 if someone has never heard of it? Formula One is a car racing championship. It's that simple. Um, You can go a step further and say that there are actually two championships. There is one for the people who make the cars and Mm -hmm. one for the people who drive the cars. That's it. It's really just that simple. And we're talking about like really nice, like all of the luxury brands that we've heard of like those companies are making these cars uh sort of so it is what i believe is referred to as open wheel racing um because the actual part where they sit is open like they don't have windows they don't have windshield wipers they're just sort of like clunked down in a car think of it as like a a very fancy version of those little tykes race cars like that's what we're dealing with here not a lot of uh amenities for the driver And there are a couple of constructors. So the championship for the people who make the cars is called the Constructors Championship. Mm. And the whole, the reason why it's called Formula One is because there is like a formula to building the car. There are all kinds of rules and regulations, like how far you can be off the ground, how much the car can weigh, how much the drivers can weigh, like just like everything that you can imagine there is a regulation around. And they switch them up and make changes and stuff like that all the time to make the cars go faster, to make it more exciting, to make it, in theory, more uh, carbon neutral, but we'll come back to that. Um, And also just to shake things up a little bit. Uh, But yes, so there are a couple of constructors, Mercedes, Red Bull, um, and Ferrari are sort of like the three big ones. They have their own teams, and then they also make uh, components for other teams' cars. Uh, The 
fancy sponsors or logos that you see, the Rolex, the Tag Heuer, I'm probably mispronouncing yeah. that, I'm not a watch girl. <laughs> Uh, those are actually sponsors for the team. Got it. Uh, and there's a whole other series of kind of lore around F1 sponsors because there's like a lot of things, a lot of corruption, a lot of weirdness. Also, a lot of sponsors that like no one really knows what they do outside <laughs> of sponsor F1. So Totally consultants. Let's see. Like yes. hedge funds, like something with group yes. at the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Do you like compete as a team, as individuals? Does it depend like the Olympics on where you were born or where your citizenship is? Like, how does that all work? So the way that the teams break down is that because F1 started in England, almost all of the teams have a presence somewhere in England, like sort of close to each other, even if they are like, say, Red Bull, which is... I didn't know this until I started watching Drive to Survive. Red Bull is an Austrian company? Who I knew? knew this. I knew this. They're like really, they're really big in Europe. Yeah. 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 Also, Red Bull is so disgusting that I just assumed that it was American, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, you know, Mercedes is a German automaker, but they also have a, a presence in England. Uh, so it just sort of depends. There's a team called Haas that is, in theory, the American team because it is owned by Gene Haas, who also owns a NASCAR team. And so they have a headquarters in England, but also one in Kannapolis, North Carolina. But their drivers are German and... I don't remember what Kevin Magnuson's nationality is, but it, he's Nordic of some sort. Um, and then their their team principal is a Austrian-Italian named Gunther, who also has some really great memeable moments. So it's sort of like a, a real big patchwork. <laughs> the thing that I really love and where I think a lot of the drama of Real Housewives of Monaco, which is what I like to call F1, uh, is, is that... So the Constructors' Championship is where the real money is. That's uh, the top 10. There are 10 teams. Whoever places first gets a shit ton of money. uh, And then it goes down the list. The Drivers' Championship. So there are two drivers for each team. So there are 20 drivers in the Drivers' Championship. That's like a whole separate thing. So you would think that if you are winning the Constructors' Championship, you are also winning the Drivers' Championship, but that's not necessarily true. And sometimes you will have uh, drivers come into conflict because the team wants to manage the race and have them do a 1-2 finish or a 2-3 finish. And let's say number three driver actually wants to be number two and so does something dumb during the race that like ends up taking both of the drivers out or causes some other issues. So there's they are a team Right. But they're not necessarily always working as a team. And their uh, Drive to Survive has some pretty spectacular examples of that. Okay, so just to use my antiquated, very basic sports analogy here, it would be like Michael Jordan's the MVP. He knows he's going to be the MVP. Maybe he's already been voted as the MVP. They get to the championships and like either he sabotages Scottie Pippen in some way or Scottie Pippen sabotages him because they're in competition. It would be like if Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen are both on the Bulls and the Bulls are trying to win a championship, but the MVP race is still open. And so they're both fighting with each other to be the MVP. Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. And they would like maybe be sabotaging each other. Yeah, there's something in F1 called team orders, which is basically when orders come down from the team that are like, hey, stay in this place or let your teammate buy or something like that. And so a lot of the conflict you see is when someone doesn't listen to team orders and is like, and you get a lot of whining on the radio or like, no, I'm faster. I should get to go buy or like, no, he should let me buy. And just it's a lot of a lot of like sort of very toddler-esque drama that I love. Okay, so let's backtrack. How did you get into F1? I had a couple of friends who were watching it who were like, you should really watch this thing. It's funny. The two teammates in this episode keep taking each other out of the race. It's like if you and I were racing against each other. And I was like, I don't want to watch a bunch of white dudes, minus Lewis Hamilton and Alex Albon. Uh, like, I don't want to watch a bunch of white dudes racing expensive cars. And, oh, that doesn't, it doesn't appeal to me. And, and to I be clear, we're talking someone. about the Netflix series, right? Yes, we're talking about Drive to Survive, the yeah. Netflix series. I was like, yeah. I don't know, it doesn't really, it's not curling over all the way for me. And I say that as someone who really loves sports, who 
gave up watching the NFL because I just morally for me, I couldn't do it anymore. Also quit watching uh, NCAA basketball, which I am contractually obligated to love being from North Carolina um, during the first wave of conference realignment. So like I, I, I love sports and I was just like, eh, this doesn't really sound appealing to me. And I finally sat down and watched one episode and I was absolutely hooked it like scratches all of the itches for me it's interesting it's fast i love fast i love cars i love all of the like internal drama and dynamics and it's also very technical so like Hmm. you can go on a very deep dive about almost any topic like from brakes to wheels to tire compounds to the history of how the tires happen to the history of the different tracks and just like there's so many little nuances and like bits and pieces I just think it's fascinating. Is it like a lot of sports where you can be a casual fan or does it like really reward intense fandom? I think it rewards either one. Like, Mm. you can be a casual fan and just, like, maybe watch a race to see who wins and call it that. Or you can have, um, not that I necessarily do this, but you could have several group chats and, like, subgroup chats where you are analyzing the nuances of uh, what the drivers are wearing and whether or not their recent breakup is affecting their driving and talking about the rumors that you see on some sort of like godforsaken deep cut F1 fan account on Instagram. You you could do that if you wanted to. <laughs> so this, this is a good segue into my next question because I think part of it to me and part of the reason why the, the series was so effective in turning people into fans is that they are very good celebrities as well. So... Who are our top, like, who are the people? Who are the players? Uh, so I will say that now they are very good celebrities. Um, Drive to Survive happened when Formula One was sold to an American company called Liberty Media. Uh, and because it's an American company, the drivers were allowed to do more on social media to, like, kind of be celebrities more. Before that, when it was owned by oh. Bernie Ecclestone, there was, like, a he put the kibosh on. Lewis Hamilton used to get penalties for, like, posting, like, pictures of him on Snapchat with, like, his niece and nephew on, like, Christmas morning. Are you kidding? So, yeah, they have, like, a very strict lockdown, and they're a lot more accessible now. And that has directly wow. coincided with Drive to Survive, which has also directly coincided with, like, a, the big jump in F1 fandom, at least in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the drivers were celebrified by yes. opening yes. up their social media. And also, I mean, mm-hmm. the decision to do Drive to Survive is part of that celebrification. Yes. Okay, so who who's your favorite? Uh, So the most important person that you need to know about is Lewis Hamilton, in my opinion. Uh, He is the lead driver for the Mercedes Petronas Formula One team, which is hilarious if you watch Drive to Survive because he always forgets the full name of it. Uh, He is the only black driver on the grid and one of two drivers of color on the grid, the other being Alex Albon, whose mother is Thai. He is an absolutely incredible racer both technically and he's also a very good celebrity in the sense that he's like very online but not in an annoying way so like he's online just enough to give the fans what they want yeah uh he recently launched a non-alcoholic tequila and like dropped enough little breadcrumbs before the launch that like people were just frothing at the mouth to speculate and try and figure out what it was uh so like he knows how to play the game also his fashion sense is m Peckable. He has a Rihanna-like gift for wearing things that do not seem like they should be clothing that should be put on a human body <laughs> and looking incredible in it. Just like... Also, he has a bulldog named Roscoe that he is obsessed with. And you know I love anyone that's obsessed with their dog. Uh, I, I'm just Googling right now just to make sure that I'm... <laughs> yeah, and so he's pretty young. Uh, he is actually, I believe, close to 40. Oh. He's 30. He's one of the, he's not the oldest, but he is one of the oldest drivers on the grid. And he, he's 5'9". They're actually almost all very short kings, because the shorter <laughs> you are, the easier it is to like fold up and get into that seat. You know what? Tall men have, they have a lot of possibilities of other things that they can do. So this is, this is a great opportunity. So my question is like, you don't like, do f1 in college like there's no like how do you get started like what do you do as like a teen very very young like seven eight years old doing go-kart races (laughs) and working your way up from there 
which is why most of the people that are in it are rich because that's a lot of time and a lot of money. Uh, Lewis Hamilton actually did not come from a super privileged background and he talks a lot about how his dad had like multiple jobs to try and keep him on the track and was like doing a lot of the work on the go-kart himself just because they couldn't afford it otherwise. There are a couple of other racers like that. Uh, I think Esteban Ocon came from like a, a normal like middle class background, but most of them come from wealthy backgrounds. A lot of them had parents who were racers. My memory from the few episodes of Drive to Survive that I watched was like they went to one of their like familial homes and it was like a palace. Uh, yeah, that I believe is the episode with Carlos Sainz, whose dad, Carlos Sainz Sr., is a <laughs> very famous, very good rally car driver. Also, I should confess that I thought I was like coming new to Formula One, but I realized as I was watching it that number one, I grew up going to the jackship a lot, but I also used to be really into rally car racing <laughs> and like my early teens. I don't know why, but yeah, I was. Really? Why? Why were you? Why did I you get no into idea. it? I have no idea. I just thought it was really cool. Fascinating. You know, like this is some one of those things, if it's around and you're kind of bored as a teen, you get into it, right? Like I got obsessed with the baseball box scores when I was a kid because I was so bored in the summer and you could like collect them and cut them out <laughs> and put them in like I put them in like a photo album or I like I really liked going to the rodeo because there wasn't anything else going on. And so some of it is just like, oh, this is a thing. And so maybe for some people, it's like, this is what is on the TV when I'm growing up. Yeah. And then I get interested that way. I come from a uh, car loving and a fast car in particular loving family. Mm. So I think that also probably had something to do with it. Totally. So I asked culture study readers to send in their questions about F1, and I've got a few that I want to ask you, and several of those are about just this overarching, like, why? Why are people into it? So what do you think just as, like, an overall? You've said a little bit about this, but I'd love to hear your grand theories. Um... So I made a rule pretty early on after watching Drive to Survive and starting to follow like various social media accounts and stuff that I was only going to get my F1 podcast, my news, my information, my analysis from women. And ah. that has made a big difference for me. So there are so many great female fan focused podcasts. And not to leave anyone out, but I'm just going to focus specifically on women because I am a cisgender woman. And this is a part of uh, sports fandom that I have always struggled with because there is nothing a cis man loves more to be like, oh, you like this sport? Please name these 16 esoteric facts or you're not a real fan. <laughs> there is none of that in this universe. There are these incredible creators like uh, Lily Herman, who writes a really great newsletter and has incredible analysis on uh, her Instagram stories. Uh, there's two girls, one formula. There's fan behavior. So that has made... Uh, it, it, it feels really welcoming yeah. to me. Um, going so far as there's a place here in New Orleans where I always go to watch F1. Uh, and it's a pretty female-dominated space, the group of people that show up. And it just is like, it's very welcoming as a female sports fan in a way that I have not found any other fandom to be. So that is a big part of why I like it so much. Um, also, I like I mentioned, I just really love all of the like weird technical aspects of it and how many teeny tiny things can shift in a race. So there are things like uh, you start the race with all of the fuel that your car will need for the race which means that it's heavier at the start of the race, lighter and therefore faster towards the end. Also, as you were going around the racetrack, the tires are all leaving rubber, so the track gets grippier as you go on. And they're just all these different variables. And so I think that there's something for everyone. If you want to be really technical, you can be really technical. If you want to just like look at the Vroom Vroom Boys go fast and various sort of circle shapes, Fine, you could do that if you just want to be interested in like the wags. They have gotten like, you know, they're very social media savvy. So it's got it's got something for everyone. All right. Our first take slash question is from Emily. My husband has been into F1 racing for a while. And recently I was asking him about it, why he likes it, what even is it, etc. I found it interesting to learn about because every time we discussed it, he mostly talked about drama between crews, staff or racers. 
I'm not into sports, but I am into rich people gossip. So is F1 basically just Real Housewives for cis men? Why do I love rich people gossip so much? And why is it such a cultural phenomenon? <laughs> yes, okay. the answer is yes. It is 100% Real Housewives of Monaco. That's what I call it. 100%. I mean, I I think about this a lot in terms of like the ways in which celebrity gossip is always feminized, but somehow sports gossip is masculinized, right? When it's about the same thing. It's oftentimes about... There's a a whole offshoot about uh, Travis and Taylor here that I'm not even going to get into. (laughs) Right? And I think that maybe F1 gives an opportunity to map some of those more uh, fun components onto like it's more seamlessly integrated into the sport does that make sense what do you think here i think that is correct and i think that part of it is that a big part of the sport is whining (laughs) it's whining (laughs) on the radio it is whining to try to play the refs to say hey the refs that's not what they're called they're called the stewards but going to the stewards to say hey we got flagged for this but this other team didn't get flagged for this or this looks suspicious you might want to go like there's a whole lot of tattling and like that kind of um interpersonal drama and conflict is baked into actually the way that you run the team and how you're always looking for every advantage and it's i think a lot more visible than it is in other sports and so you get you get more access to it this I think highlights my ignorance, but how long has it been around? Uh, I'm sure there is some dude on the internet waiting to well actually me, but uh, generally speaking, it started right after World War II because there were a bunch of abandoned air bases. And so naturally someone was like, you know what we should do? Drive some cars really (laughs) fast around them. And that's how it started. And so I wonder how much too is part, and I see this a lot in golf, which I'm more familiar with is like, how you have these structures that have been in place that have at least historically really favored people with money or access to money or like this is something that people with money do. And then part of the narrative that I think particularly Americans like is what happens when we like new people and whether that's people of color, that's people who didn't grow up in those incredibly high echelons of power, like enter the sport. And then that becomes a narrative. What do you think about that? Yeah. Like this year, uh, Logan Sargent, who is literally a Florida man, is the uh, first American racer on the grid, which is a way of saying he is the first American racer competing amongst the 20 drivers on the 10 teams uh, in many, many years. And so there's been like a whole lot of talk around that about him being an American, also about him being a rookie, how that relates to this like historically like epitome of British racing team that he is on Williams. So yeah, uh, I I think that you are absolutely spot on with that. So the part of the question where she says, why do I like rich people gossip so much? I mean, it's just for me, it's the like, oh, even when they have all of their other needs met, there's still drama. Like there is always going to be drama. Yes. I I don't know how to answer that other than to say that I also enjoy rich people gossip because I really enjoy drama that does not involve me. (laughs) And I think the thing with rich people is that because they have all of their other needs met, most of the time the drama is like incredibly low stakes. So like you're watching it thinking, how am I going to pay my rent? And like Kim and Courtney are arguing over who copied who's like Italian Dolce and Gabbana wedding. Like (laughs) it's, the absolute and utter just ridiculousness of the things that some of these folks are actually worried about compared to the grand scheme of things. And the fact that they don't like, I worry about stupid things all the time, but I am fully aware that like no one cares what color the hand towels in my bathroom are, except for me. Like, I know that that's a ridiculous thing to worry about. Kim and Courtney, to use an example, are out here fighting about who copied whose wedding. Like, the future of the universe depends on it. (laughs) So, (laughs) the analog there (laughs) is the very high-stakes retiree gossip on Nextdoor, which, as you point out, their other needs are met in many other ways. And so, what they are doing with their spare time is they are fighting with each other. There was a huge fight last year (laughs) about a woman who kept putting out food for the deer. And so they have a lot of time 
to think about this. And as an observer, I have to use Nextdoor because it's the place where like all the news about our the island that I live on, that's where it lives. But I couldn't get enough of it. I was like, oh my gosh, that person came in and like they said this and and like researching them the way that I would research <laughs> celebrity. It's like homeowners association yes. drama. Also, yes. I would like to point out that I am aggressively anti-deer. They're just walking disease vectors, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah, don't feed the fucking deer. Uh, okay, <laughs> exactly. so okay, we have a question from Megan about the world of racing and what sets F1 apart. Thoughts on how Formula One is the cool new sport, but NASCAR is still largely seen, as far as I know, as quote-unquote white trash culture? As someone who doesn't watch either, they seem similar. Is it that Formula One has more expensive cars, that it's global, or is it about drivers and fans? Cannot wait to hear your answer to this, Nicole. Um, so this is actually a really interesting question for me, because uh, as I hope many of you know, but if you don't, NASCAR stands for the National Association of Stock Car Car. Automotive Racing, I think. Uh, But it started out as bootlegging and it started out like in the South and the Carolinas is like you got to build a really fancy car based off of or a really fast car out of whatever parts you have around so that when someone discovers your moonshine still, you can get away. Like that's (laughs) that is the I did not know that origins. Yeah, that's the origins of NASCAR. So I actually grew up because I was in North Carolina, like being around NASCAR a lot. My mom went to NASCAR races. I watched my uh, friend's brother like go to drag races. So I'm not sure if I'm the best person to ask this just because I I don't think that NASCAR is white trash because I am not white. And I and a lot of my family have been not necessarily involved in NASCAR, but in things that are sort of like related to it. So like motorcycle racing and like that kind of thing. Um, I think the appeal of Formula One over NASCAR is that it's perceived as being fancier because it's like European, right? Right. Like, right. I took a trip to Italy this summer slash fall and I have been doing in my best like annoying girl that came back from study abroad voice like oh my god the honey there was just so much better than it is here like that's it it's 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 just that it's from somewhere else and so that makes it seem cooler than whatever it is that we have here yeah that's a large part of it at least that's all I can figure because they're there aren't really a lot of differences. There's also um, a racing circuit called IndyCar that I don't know as much about, oh, right. that it's kind of like partially between Formula One and NASCAR in terms of uh, like rules and setup and stuff like that. I do want to get more into IndyCar, but I don't know if I have time in my busy <laughs> F1 focus schedule. <laughs> you know, I grew up where I grew up, there was a lot of um, demolition derbies, which mm. are essentially. Um, you take old cars that you've kind of made look cool and then you smash them into each other in usually at like a rodeo grounds. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're pretty great, but they also like there's something about the whole <laughs> the whole structure of the event that is meant for mischief. Right. Like there are just there's a lot mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that what I, I really appreciate the point that you make about how NASCAR maybe signifies to people outside of the South in particular as something that is white trash culture in quotes. But it's almost like how evangelical has become this shorthand for a certain type of politics, which completely Mm -hmm. excludes like an entire population of evangelicals, right? Especially when we're talking about race. So yeah, I think that you're right. I think that it, the F1 thing is that it's global and that... I, I don't even like, think it's that it's global. I think it's that it's European. Like, it oh. is European in origin, and then while it might be global now, right. I think that people think of it as like, oh, this is our dumb American racing, and this is the fancy European racing. Like, Right, right, right. I think if there's the divide, that's, that's the way that folks are thinking of it. You were right in pointing out, however, that it is global. Like, the race this weekend... Uh, is in Brazil, which interestingly is basically like a home race for Lewis Hamilton. Brazil has like claimed him as their own, which is kind of cool to see. Someone asked this question. They were like, how is that working? How is it that a, he's like, is he secretly Brazilian that we don't know about? Or is it just that Brazil has claimed him? I think it's that Brazil has claimed them. I think it's probably because he's black and it's nice to see someone who looks like the people in your country. Uh, There's also a fascinating backstory here, which is that uh, Max Verstappen, who is the world champion and lead driver for Red Bull, is uh, dating this woman named Kelly Piquet. 
Kelly Piquet's father and brother, Nelson and Nelson Jr., were both Formula One racers and also raced in some other series. They're Bolsonaro supporters. Nelson Piquet Sr. has made some vile racist comments about Lewis Hamilton um, that Kelly has, like, not really ignored or spoken on. So uh, my Formula One group chat has done a lot of speculating about how mad the Piquet family must be that they are, and this is the important part I left out, they're all actually Brazilian, like, born in Brazil. Uh We've been talking about how mad they must be that, like, Lewis comes to town and everyone is just like, he's home! And just, like, completely ignores him. How much of the fandom, this is a good follow-up question, has developed since the Netflix series? And is there a divide in the fandom of, like, oh, well, I was a fan before Drive to Survive? Yes, there is. Uh, It breaks down a lot along gender lines, a Mm. lot along, like, uh, some of the drivers have even made comments about how... Uh, the upswing in fandom, particularly in female fandom, is just because they want to look at the hot guys oh and God. they don't care about anything else. Also, hilariously, in my opinion, the driver that said this is not one of the most attractive on the grid, if we're really going to start talking about <laughs> things like that. So, like, I don't know what you mean, sir. Um, so, yes, there is a divide. There is always a divide in sports because we've touched on gendered sports fandom and how dumb it is. But... There's been a lot of talk around what F1 is going to do with this upswing in American fandom because they tend to see other non-American, like, leagues and teams and sports tend to see the U.S. as a cash cow because they can make a lot of money here. Um, And there's some talk about this in the context of the race schedule. So there, uh, for a while, was one F1 race in the U.S. It's held in Austin at Circuit of the Americas, which is a purpose-built track. It is built for racing. Um, they added a second one that they run in Miami, which is has a reputation for being like a place to see and be seen and not really mm. being for like actual fans. And this year, in a couple of weeks, they will be running a race in Vegas that actually goes down the Vegas Strip and has caused all kinds of drama in Las Vegas. There is no place to watch the uh, race for free, even though they will be going down the strip. They're putting up barriers so that you can't actually see if you're just walking along. Like, you have to pay to watch the race. There's nowhere really to catch a glimpse of it otherwise. The people in the city of Las Vegas are pissed about this because there essentially would be like if a race was happening on your street and all of a sudden they blocked it off and were like, hey, you got to pay us $150 to look outside your window and <laughs> right. see anything. Right. It's made like a traffic nightmare. It's been a construction nightmare. I've actually seen a little bit of it because I have family in Vegas. So I've been there uh, twice this year. But it's a money grab because yeah. the tickets are expensive. The packages you can imagine like being in Vegas with the big hotels are expensive. Yeah. So it makes F1 a lot of money. And so there's a real tension between trying to actually cultivate an American fan base that like is very online and loves memes, love merch, like that kind of thing, and just using it as like a, a cash grab. Okay, so next question is from Hannah, and it's about the ethics of being an F1 fan. So I'm, again, excited to hear your response. This is an F1 question, but also a question about ethical consumption as a fan in general. I've been a longtime fangirl of many things, one of them being Formula One. It has brought me so many lovely things, including a community. Cheering while rich dudes drive in circles really does bring me joy. Um, But there are some times when I grapple with being a fan of a sport with mixed morals, to put it lightly, you know, racing in places with dubious human rights records, impact on the climate, etc. I was wondering if there is a civic duty aspect of being a fan, or should there be? And how can we wield nuance as fans of the things we love? Oh, it's just like asking about how to be a person in the world. What is your answer to this one? (laughs) I have a lot of thoughts on this as someone who gave up her two favorite sports fandoms, the NFL and NCAA basketball, over what I felt were moral grounds. Uh, You can quibble on conference realignment, but that was just a money grab, so I feel like it was kind of immoral. And then we can talk about college athletes and all the money and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, uh, yeah, cheering for a bunch of mostly white rich dudes to win a race that is using up countless resources, does that feel great? No. But without being too dismissive, like, all of our faves are problematic, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I just, 
I feel very strongly that you got to get your joy where you can find it. And there are ways to be an ethical fan. It's funny that you should get this question. There's actually a driver who is no longer on the grid, world champion, very famous Sebastian Vettel, who quit and retired from F1 last year in part because of the environmental concerns he had about it. He stopped doing like private jets. He would always like bike to races, stuff like that. Um, And was actually, along with Lewis Hamilton, sort of uh, two of the most vocally progressive drivers in the sport. And F1 has made some commitments towards being more sustainable, but I don't think it's any more immoral than watching any other sport, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can argue about the place that sport in general deserves in our lives, but you could be doing something else, something more productive for humanity, arguably, with those resources. But so what? Like, we need sports, we need play, we need those sorts of things. And so, I don't know, I think that by being conscious of how sort of weird it is in field, you're already a step ahead of most people. Um, and I think just sort of like do what you can. Like, for instance, there are a lot of great creators on Etsy and other places who make really cool merch um, that is not like officially F1 sanctioned. Also, most of the official merch is not that great anyway. So like, if you want to buy something, buy from them. Like, support your local coffee shop when they're showing the races or ask them to do it there. Like, there are ways to sort of nibble around the edges but like well and i don't don't think that like condemning f1 is going to condemn car culture in the united states do you know what i mean no like (laughs) it's one of those things that's similar to oh you should be being incredibly mindful about sorting your recycling and like rinse closely every single item because that is the only way that you prevent climate change Right? It puts the impetus for change solely on the individual, right? And on, on the power of your individual fandom. I do think, I agree with you. I don't watch football anymore either because I also reached a point where I was like, there's something fucked up about the way that we are incentivizing yeah, this pipeline. I couldn't pipeline. cheer for the hits over the middle anymore. Right. I just I right. got to a point where I was like, oh, you're not going to remember your kids in five years because of that. Like, yeah. I can't I can't watch this. Or even the tension for me that's that's difficult is like, I want to watch football, but I would never let my kid play football. Mm-hmm. What does that say? Whereas yeah. I think that most people watching F1 would be like, I mean, if I had a billion dollars and could get my kids started doing this driving, that'd Listen, be kind of cool. I've often thought, like, maybe is it too late for a career for me? Yeah, okay. I got to get one of my friend's kids into it. Like, I'll bankroll yes. them. It's fine. <laughs> one of your child I mean, army. also a dangerous sport, just yes. to be clear. No one yes. has died in a Formula One race, but there are sort of... Um, lower levels like Formula 2 and 3, and people have died in those races. There have been some really serious injuries. I mean, these cars are going, you know, 200 miles an hour around, like, a very flippy racetrack. Like, there, it is still a dangerous sport, absolutely. Also, it makes me mad that people who say that they're not athletes, because to be able to drive a car at that speed, just the, like, actual physical forces that you are subjected to, like... Right. It's very similar in a lot of ways to golf in so much as you are using your musculature and your um, reflexes and your mental game. And so we can think of that as a sport. So and also all of those fights, like what is it for? Why does it matter? What are the stakes? (laughs) If we're talking about skill, yes, there is absolutely skill there. All right. So we have a couple of questions now that I'm going to be honest, I don't even know if I know exactly what they mean. So can you translate (laughs) them for me (laughs) and then tell me what you think? So this first one is from Camille. I've been following Formula One since getting hooked with Drive to Survive. My favorite driver is Lando Norris. But putting more thought into it and it starts to feel gross. Is the FIA corrupt? Why were Hamilton and Leclerc disqualified after the race in Austin? A part on the underside of the car was out of specification tolerances. Help me understand the nuances. <laughs> Help me understand the nuances. <laughs> Help me okay. understand the nuances. All right. Uh, yes, the FIA is corrupt in the same way that every major governing body of sports is corrupt. That goes without saying. I think it is. It's just... It's, it's, It's what happens when you give a bunch of people, mostly men, a lot of power to regulate something that makes a whole lot of money. So, yes, is my answer to that question. Uh, Why were Lewis and Charles disqualified? 
So this goes into the technical aspects of F1, but like I mentioned before, there is a formula and there are very specific regulations for every single part of the car. My understanding is that they were disqualified because there is like a plate on the car that scrapes along the bottom of the racetrack. And if it wears too thin, you can get disqualified. Because if it wears too thin, that means your car is sitting too low, which means you have an unfair advantage in being able to grip the track and stay on it better than the other cars. Got it. That's my understanding. It's like an indicator that something in your formula is off. Uh, It is an indicator, yes, that something in your formula is off and whether that is intentional or not is a whole separate thing. Uh, I think a lot of the drama around that particular disqualification was that the FIA does random, I'm using air quotes here, spot checks, and they just happen to check those two cars. And so there's some like conspiracy theories about that. What are are the conspiracy Um, theories? I just like, because... So there's a whole lot of stuff between Max, who is racing for Red Bull. Red Bull has seen a lot of dominance following a period of Lewis and Mercedes dominating. Charles Leclerc races for Ferrari, which is the other of like the big three teams. So there's just, it's, it's also, I should have mentioned this earlier. The conspiracy theories in Formula One are both wackadoodle and also accurate Uh uh, in a way that is really entertaining. There was a whole conspiracy theory about Ferrari cheating that actually turned out to be true that involved uh, tangentially Lewis and another. Yes, there's a lot of great lore, as one of my uh, cousins who is into now Formula One, thanks to me, calls it. There's just so much backstory behind everything. I mean, the great thing about conspiracy theories is that for a lot of things that, as you say, are controlled by men and make a lot of money, there is conspiracy going on, right? Like they are conspiring (laughs) to to do things. Absolutely. And so when you come up with theories of a conspiracy, they, some of them are off, but some of them are probably on, right? Mm -hmm. There is, there is conspiring happening in the background. Yes. All right. This next person wants to remain anonymous. So Melody's going to read their question. Was the controversy at the end of the 2021 season and the fight for the championship due to simple human error? Was it to maximize drama? Was it just to have a new champion because Hamilton's domination was getting boring? A win would have Hamilton, the first and so far only black F1 driver, surpassing Schumacher for most world drivers championships. Did racism play a part in the decision? And why does nobody seem to even be asking that? Okay, so back up here. What is the controversy at the end of the 2021 season? Oh, man. (laughs) This is where I put on my tinfoil hat because I have some theories about this. Yes, The controversy at the end of the 2021 season is that the championship came down to Max and Lewis in a race in Abu Dhabi. And because... I'm I'm extremely oversimplifying this, but it came down between Max and Lewis and Abu Dhabi. Whoever won was going to win the world championship, the driver's world championship. And because of a decision made by one of the stewards who were like the referees uh, that not necessarily favored Max, but definitely disadvantaged Lewis, uh, Max won the championship. That is a extremely simplified version of it. People have been fighting about it basically since it happened. I am in the Team Lewis camp. I think it was absolute horseshit. Uh, the steward that made the call, <laughs> the steward that made the call, I'm not laughing that he got death threats, but he got like death threats, stuff like that. There's a very uh, well-known part of Drive to Survive where Toto Wolf, the incredibly attractive Uh, team principal for Mercedes yells in his like Austrian accent. No, no, Michael, that is not right. That has become like a a meme in the F1 world. Yeah. That's what I was laughing about. But uh, I actually don't think that racism played a part in it. I can't believe that I am saying that because it almost always does. I also don't think it was human error, though. I think that, okay, I'm speculating wildly. This is me and my tinfoil hat right now. Yeah. I think that it was not human error. I think that Michael wanted to make something happen, whether that was for Red Bull to win or for Lewis to lose or just to make something exciting happen. I think that he made a call in order to do that. And it kind of backfired, Mm. I think. 
Uh, that is my personal belief. You can find speculation about every single part of this race, about every single part of the call, about it's like that meme, the guy with like the red strings everywhere about yep. how like yep. Michael Massey, who is the the steward that made the call, relates to Lewis and to Toto and, the, and just, but yeah, it's, uh, I think it was a bullshit call and it was a bullshit call that essentially threw a race and made a huge, huge difference um, I think that, I mean, maybe it is racism that folks didn't want to see Lewis Hamilton break Michael Schumacher's record. Mm. Uh, Michael Schumacher is a very, very, very famous race car driver. He uh, has been, we think, in a coma for many years now. His son, Mick, is actually a reserve driver for uh, Mercedes for Lewis Hamilton's team. Um, maybe it was racism. Maybe it was just not wanting that record to be broken, period. Um, yeah, it's, speaking of all the rich texts in Formula One, that one race, like, someone is going to write a book about it, and I'm going to buy it and read it over and over again. <laughs> what are your favorite places, besides your group chats, for F1 gossip, speculation, conversation, discourse? I really love Reddit. I don't ever post, but I do like to read. Yep. I listen to, I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts and that is where I get a lot of my information, speculation, stuff like that. I'm going to run down a list of my favorites. Uh, again, noting that I try really hard to only get my Formula One information from women just because I like how welcoming that fandom is. So there's uh, Fan Behavior, which is a Formula One podcast. There's four F1R, four, get it, <laughs> yeah. for the girls, uh, which is a Formula One podcast. And if I remember correctly, they have a pretty active Discord where you can find a lot of really cool information. Uh, there's Two Girls, One Formula. There is DRS, the Donut Racing Show. And then there is also Lily Herman's podcast, which I think is only for like Patreon subscribers mm. called Spare Parts, but it is fantastic. She, uh, one of my friends turned me on to her. I also, I think we might have talked about this before. I'm an avid romance reader. And Lily is like lives at the intersection of like pop culture, romance, Formula One, and many other things. So her Instagram stories are brilliant. They're perfect. She always gives a lot of recommendations and has some really great analysis. So I follow her and we spend a lot of time dissecting her Instagram posts in my various group chats. Where's the joy for you? Uh, the fast cars, really. Like, it's just, I have been accused of being a fast driver, which I am. Uh, in another life, I absolutely would have loved to have been some sort of race car driver. So, like, the adrenaline rush that I get from just, like, watching it and thinking about what it must feel like to, like, drive around all these corners and these curves and, like, all the things that you have to do to, like, like I take a lot of road trips and I'm like, God, how exhausting would it be to have to drive around the same circuit at 200 plus miles an hour with all of these other people who are actively trying to get in front of you or like maybe push you up like ah so that's that's yeah I just I think it is absolutely fascinating like there are just so many little things like the wind can shift in a different direction and that can totally change the race it's wild to me like football is kind of like a game of chance yeah but it also is sort of like if you know who is lining up against who, you can kind of figure out what will happen. In almost every race, there is something just totally unaccounted for that like makes something crazy happen. Do you think that Drive to Survive is the best entry point if someone wants to get into it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, 100%. I thought so. It's a very low stakes entry point and it's a very entertaining one. And for our last question, I want to know what your most unpopular opinion is about F1. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not as unpopular as it was, but yeah. when I first started saying it, it was unpopular. And that is that Carlos is a better driver than Charles. He deserves to be the lead driver. I'm going to pretend like I know everything that you just said. I was <laughs> <laughs> nodding. Like, yeah, that's great. <laughs> then the F1 but, fans know what I mean. Exactly. 
this has been a total pleasure. I feel like I actually understand some things now. Um, and what yeah. I need you to do is to start rewatching Drive to Survive, yeah. and then I need you to text me, and I will like talk you through every episode. <laughs> I would like I'm it. Here. I'm ready for all of your Melody. You t- just like text me. I'm ready to answer all of the questions and go into exhaustive detail about things that you do not actually want to know that much about. Because you know, I watched the golf one with my partner, who's a golfer, and he like is like the little you know the little bird being like, and this guy is a douche, and he's about to go do this, you know, like, and this guy actually is shit, like. So that there to is me is compelling. Incredi- there are two incredibly important plot lines that are just left out of the last season of <sighs> Drive to Survive entirely. Why? I don't know. Wait, like they didn't so, want that drama on. out you in the watch, air. You watch the season. You watch all the little races. And then you watch the Netflix series that comes out that recaps yes, so the whole I, season. Yes. That you already watched. That's exactly watched. what I do. So <laughs> last season, this is the 2023 season. So the 2022 season was the first time I started watching the actual races. Yeah. And I only watched about half of the season. This season will be the first one that I have watched all of the races all the way through. Um, but because I am a maniac, I also bought myself a subscription to F1 TV. So I've been going back starting and I think I started in 2017 for some arbitrary reason. And I've been watching all of the races because I'm a maniac. <laughs> and so then then you have to sit through the show and be like, why did they leave this out? Because you right. also watch it happen in mm-hmm. real time. Uh-huh, it's like uh-huh. it's like me watching the Britney documentary, the like eight part documentary, and be like, "How do they not talk about this?" Right, like this particular narrative that was happening because I lived through it. If I'm gonna be it. interested in something, I'm gonna hyperfixate. Otherwise, what's the point? Okay, if people want to know more about your F1 opinions, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me on the internet. I quit the platform formerly known as Twitter because it's just kind of a cesspool. So the best place to find me and my excellent opinions on the internet is probably on Instagram. And I am Nola. All right. It sounds like we've reached the end of our dog's tolerance for us recording on a Friday afternoon. Nicole, thank you so much for joining me. And listeners, if you're a paid subscriber, stick around for advice time because Melody and I are going to answer a question about a sticky friendship situation. Thanks for listening to the Culture Study Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have so many great episodes in the works, and I promise you don't want to miss any of them. If you want to suggest a topic, ask a question about the culture that surrounds you, or submit a question for our subscriber-only advice time segment, check the show notes for a link to our Substack. If you want to support the show and get all of the bonus content, head to culturestudypod.substack.com. It's five bucks a month or $50 a year, and you'll get ad-free episodes, an exclusive advice time segment, weekly discussion threads for each episode, and a link to a special Google form so that your questions go to the front of the line. And the knowledge that you're making this show sustainable. The Culture Study Podcast is produced by me, Anne Helen Peterson, and Melody Rowell. Our music is by Poddington Bear. You can find me on Instagram at Anne Helen Peterson and the show at Culture Study Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll talk again soon.